0: Everybody out there in podcast land, it says Chris, the public safety guru, a.k.a. the EMT tutor, bringing you this exciting announcement. I have revamped memberships and you can now access exclusive content, which includes quizzes, practice tests, block exams, practice final exams, study guides and other resources for the low cost of $4.99 a month. And when you're done with your EMT program or taking the National Registry exam, you can cancel. Now, you can join from your favorite podcast app, but it's best if you do it from Spotify or our Patreon channel. If you join from your podcast app, all you need to do is send me an email to Guru at gmail.com letting me know that you signed up. But if you do it from Patreon, I get instant notification which grants you instant access to our Google Drive which has all of these resources including the ad-free version of this podcast. But wait, here is the most exciting part. When you subscribe, you get access to our all new Discord channel which allows you to have interaction with me where you can ask me specific questions as it relates to your EMT program or prepping for the National Registry exam. But let's just say you just have that question where you're not understanding something. Well, we can answer that question through Discord, and that's what I'm really excited about. And last, you can interact with this EMT community and help each other. All right, don't forget to follow us on Instagram, at the EMT Tutor, and I almost forgot, if you're looking for us at Patreon, search for the EMT tutor. All right, let's get on with your learning. All right, in this lecture the EMT student should have a fundamental understanding of the anatomy and physiology of the gastrointestinal, general urinary, and renal system. EMT students should also understand the related gastrointestinal emergencies which include but are not limited to direct or referred abdominal pain, hypoglycemia, hyperglycemia, shock related to acute or chronic gastrointestinal disorders, hemorrhaging, peritonitis, and complications related to the renal system. As usual, we're going to identify those knowledge domains that the EMT should know at the end of the lecture series for NREMT test preparation or your own particular program. Okay, you should be able to describe the basic anatomy and physiology of the gastrointestinal, genital, and urinary systems. Define the term of acute abdomen and describe the pathological conditions of the gastrointestinal, genital, and urinary systems. You should be able to explain what referred pain is and recognize that abdominal pain can rise from other body systems. The EMT student should be able to identify the signs and symptoms and common causes of acute abdominal emergencies. The EMT should know the procedures in the assessment and management of acute and chronic gastrointestinal hemorrhaging, peritonitis, and ulcerated disease. You should also be able to list the most common abdominal emergencies with the most common locations of direct and referred pain. You should be able to explain the procedures to follow for patient assessment of gastrointestinal and urological emergencies and describe the procedures to follow in managing the patient with shock associated with abdominal emergencies. Last, the EMT should be able to describe the emergency medical care of the patient with gastrointestinal or urological emergencies and understand the principles of kidney dialysis. Alright, let's jump into this and get your head wrapped around all of these concepts or knowledge domains. Believe it or not, abdominal pain is a common complaint. However, the cause of abdominal pain is often difficult to identify. As an EMT, you do not need to determine the exact cause of abdominal pain. You should be able to recognize a life-threatening problem and act quickly. The patient in pain is probably anxious, requiring your skills of rapid assessment and emotional support. Alright, we're going to now jump into a little AMP for this lecture, but remember, you should always refer to your original AMP lecture for the body systems. Alright, the abdomen is the region between your diaphragm and pelvis. It contains many organs and organ systems that provide the following functions digestive, reproductive, endocrine, and regulatory. Now, the abdominal cavity contains solid and hollow organs that make up three systems. The gastrointestinal system, the genital system and the urinary system. The abdomen is made up of both solid and hollow organs and where this plays a role is injury. An injury to a solid organ can cause shock and bleeding while a perforation of a hollow organ can cause the contents of that organ to leak out and contaminate the abdominal cavity. Now, I want you to think of the abdomen as being double wrapped. We have two peritoneums. We have the parietal peritoneum and the visceral peritoneum. The peritoneum is a thin membrane lining the abdominal cavity and covering each organ. So, the parietal peritoneum lines the abdominal cavity while the visceral peritoneum covers each organ. Now, you may have heard of the peritoneal space. The peritoneal space is the potential space between these two layers. A small amount of peritoneal fluid occupies this space and provides lubrication. Now I wanna go back to the solid and hollow organs of the body. I feel it's very important for an EMT to know which ones are solid and which ones are hollow. So these are the solid organs. The liver, spleen, pancreas, kidneys, and ovaries while well, the hollow organs of the body are the gallbladder stomach small intestine large intestine and the urinary bladder so where are these organs located remember your abdomen is broken up into four quadrants the left upper quadrant the right upper quadrant the left lower quadrant and the right lower quadrant so let's talk about those quadrants the right upper quadrant contains the gallbladder, the liver, the right kidney, a portion of the small bowel, a portion of the ascending and transverse colon, and the small segment of the pancreas. Let's identify that again. The right upper quadrant contains the gallbladder, the liver, the right kidney, a portion of the small bowel a portion of the ascending and transverse colon, and a small segment of the pancreas. Now let's go to the right lower quadrant. The the right lower quadrant contains the appendix, a part of the bladder, a portion of the small bowel, portions of the female reductive tract, and the ascending colon, and last, the rectum. One more time, the right lower quadrant contains the appendix, a part of the bladder, a portion of the small bowel, portions of the female reproductive tract, the ascending colon, and finally, the rectum. Now, moving on over to the left side, the left upper quadrant contains the spleen, a small portion of the liver, the left kidney, the stomach, a portion of the transverse and descending colon, and the body and head of the pancreas. All right, left upper quadrant one more time. The spleen, a small portion of the liver, the left kidney, the stomach, a portion of the transverse and descending colon, the body and head of the pancreas. Now let's work to the left lower quadrant. The left lower quadrant contains the sigmoid colon, part of the bladder, a portion of the small bowel, portions of the female reproductive tract, the descending colon, and the rectum. One more time, the left lower quadrant contains the sigmoid colon, part of the bladder, a portion of the small bowel, portions of the female reproductive tract, the descending colon, and last, the rectum. Okay, now we're gonna specifically talk about the gastrointestinal system which is responsible for the digestion process. Now, digestion begins as soon as you put food into your mouth and it's chewed. Your salivary glands secrete saliva and begin to break food down. When that food is then swallowed, food travels down the esophagus to the stomach. The stomach is the main organ of the digestive system. Gastric juices will begin to break down the food. The liver will also assist in digestion as it secretes bile. This aids in the digestion of fats. But the liver will also filter toxic substances produced by digestion. It creates the R-glucose stores and produces substances necessary for blood clotting and immune function. Now, the gallbladder is also an organ of digestion and it serves a purpose of being a reservoir for bile. Food will then travel to the small intestine, which contains three sections. The first section is the duodenum. In the duodenum, the digestive juices from the pancreas and liver mix together. The pancreas secretes enzymes that break down starches, fats, and proteins. The pancreas also releases amylase, which is responsible for breaking down starches into sugar. Now, bicarbonate is also produced in the pancreas, and this neutralizes stomach acid in the duodenum. Last, insulin is also produced in the pancreas, and this regulates the amount of glucose in the bloodstream. Okay, we're now going to talk about the jejunum. The jejunum plays a major role in absorption of digestive products. It does much of the work in the small intestine. And last, we have the ileum. The ileum is responsible for absorbing nutrients that were not absorbed earlier. Now, it also absorbs bile acids so they can be returned to the liver for future use. Okay, we're still not done with the digestive process. Let's talk a little bit about the colon, which is known as the large intestine. Food not broken down and used moves into the colon as a waste product. Peristalsis moves the waste matter through the intestines water is then absorbed and stool is formed the stool will work its way through the rectum to the anus and is finally defecated before we move on we got to talk a little bit about the spleen since it's located in the abdomen the spleen has no digestive function now the spleen is part of the lymphatic system it plays a significant role in relation to red blood cells and the immune system It also assists in filtration of blood and aids in the development of red blood cells. It also serves as a blood reservoir and produces antibodies. As we continue our journey in the anatomy and physiology of the gastrointestinal system, we also have to talk about the genital system. We're first going to identify the primary structures of the male reproductive system. The male reproductive system consists of the testicles, the epididymis, the vasa deferentia, the seminal vesicles, the prostate gland, and finally the penis. Once again, testicles, epididymis, vas deferentia, seminal vesicles, prostate gland, and the penis. The female reproductive system contains the ovaries, fallopian tubes, uterus, cervix, and vagina. One more time. The female reproductive system consists the ovaries, the fallopian tubes, the uterus, cervix, and vagina. All right, we're now gonna talk about the urinary system. The urinary system controls discharge of certain waste materials filtered from the blood by the kidneys. Now, the kidneys are solid organs, while the ureters, bladder, and urethra are hollow organs. Now, there are two kidneys, one on each side of the body, they lie on the posterior muscular wall of the abdomen behind the peritoneum in the retroperitoneal space. They play an important role in the regulation of acidity and blood pressure. They also rid the body of toxic waste and control the balance of fluid and electrolytes. The blood flow in the kidneys is considered to be very high. Now, the uterus join each kidney to the bladder. They are small, hollow, muscular tubes. Peristalsis moves urine to the bladder. The urinary bladder is located immediately behind the pubic symphysis. The bladder empties to the outside of the body through the urethra. Now, for the male, the urethra passes from the anterior base of the bladder through the penis. For the female, the urethra opens at the front of the vagina. The normal adult will form 1.5 to 2 liters of urine per day. I bet you're sitting back saying, wow, I have a lot more information about the way we pee and poop than I ever thought I would have to know. Okay, just a little EMT humor. Let's jump into the pathophysiology of this lecture. The abdominal cavity is lined by a membrane called the peritoneum. The peritoneum also covers the organs of the abdomen. Now, we have two peritoneums. There is the parietal peritoneum and the visceral peritoneum. The parietal peritoneum lines the walls of the abdominal cavity, while the visceral peritoneum covers the organs. Now, the presence of foreign materials such as blood, pus, bile, pancreatic juice, or amniotic fluid can irritate the peritoneum, causing peritonitis. We'll be talking about that in just a little bit. The term acute abdomen refers to the sudden onset of abdominal pain. It's often associated with severe progressive problems requiring medical attention. Now, as promised, we're going to now talk about peritonitis. Peritonitis is the inflammation of the perineum. It typically causes ileus. Ileus is the paralysis of muscular contractions that normally propel material through the intestines. Now, the retained gas and feces cause abdominal distention. The stomach can empty itself only by vomiting, emesis. Peritonitis is frequently associated with nausea and vomiting. Peritonitis is also associated with the loss of bodily fluid in the abdominal cavity. The patient may present with tachycardia and hypotension, so look for signs of shock. Other problems that may arise from... Peritonitis are diverticulitis, cholecytitis, and acute appendicitis. Now, diverticulitis is the inflammation in small pockets at weak areas in the muscle walls. Fever may be present. Cholecytitis is a gallbladder infection, and once again, fever may be present. And last, we have acute appendicitis. The patient's temperature may be within normal limits on this particular problem. Let's talk a little bit about abdominal pain. First, there are two different types of nerves that supply the peritoneum. Abdominal pain can have different qualities. The parietal peritoneum is supplied by the same nerves that supply the skin of the abdomen. These nerves can perceive pain, touch, pressure, heat, and cold. So what does this mean? Well, they can easily identify and localize a point of irritation. Unlike the nerves that supply the visceral peritoneum, these are supplied by the autotomic nervous system, and nerves are far less able to localize sensation. Patients will not be able to describe exactly where the pain is, and this is called referred pain. What does this mean for you? Well, when you're doing that patient assessment, if the patient is able to tell you exactly where the pain is at, then you're probably looking for a problem possibly in the peritoneal peritoneum. If the pain is generalized, then the patient's condition may involve the visceral peritoneum. All right, abdominal pain or discomfort. Both peritoneal and retroperitoneal organs can cause pain in the abdomen. Visceral pain originates in the organs within the abdomen and is often described as a dull, aching, or intermittent pain. The reason for this is because there are fewer nerve endings allowing for the patient to feel a diffuse sensation of pain. That's why patients will frequently describe their pain as dull or achy, or even intermittent. This intermittent pain can also be called colic. You may hear that with small children, and this is a direct result from distension and or contraction of the hollow organs. Remember, persistent or constant pain usually originates from solid organs. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about parietal pain. Parietal pain originates from the parietal peritoneum. There are many, many nerve endings there, which allow for a specific, efficient sensation of pain. This pain is frequently described as sharp. Pain is often severe and constant, and it's localized to a specific area. You may come across that patient who describes their pain as tearing. This tearing pain typically refers to a dissection of the abdominal aorta. What's happening is there's a separation of layers of this large blood vessel being caused by an aneurysm. Now, sometimes if the aneurysm is located in the retroperitoneal location of the aorta, the pain will be referred to the back. Now, what is referred pain? Referred pain is the perception of pain in skin or muscles at distant locations. The abdomen has many nerves from different parts of the nervous system. The nerve pathways overlap as they return to the spinal cord. Pain sensation is transmitted from one system to the other. So let me paint a picture for you. The pain of a diseased gallbladder is often felt in the shoulder or scapula because the gallbladder nerve crosses the shoulder nerve and transmits its pain sensation to it. This is often used interchangeably with radiating pain. So that actually is a question you may see on national registry. We're now gonna talk about the causes of acute abdominal pain. Let's first talk about ulcers. Ulcers form when the protective layer of mucus erodes, allowing acid to eat into the organ. Causes of peptic ulcers are a helobacter, pylori infection, chronic use of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, and alcohol and smoking. If the erosion is severe, it can lead to gastric bleeding. Peptic ulcers affect men and women equally but occur more frequently in the geriatric population. Nausea, vomiting, belching, and heartburn are common symptoms. Some ulcers actually heal without intervention. Now let's talk a little bit about gallstones. The gallbladder is a storage pouch for digestive juices and waste from the liver. Gallstones may form and if the blockage does not pass, it can lead to severe inflammation of the gallbladder called cholecytitis. Cholecytitis is a condition in which the wall of the gallbladder is inflamed. The gallbladder can rupture in severe cases. It usually presents as a constant severe pain in the right upper or mid abdominal region and may refer to the right upper back, flank, or shoulder area. Symptoms may appear 30 minutes after a fatty meal or at night. Symptoms include nausea, vomiting, indigestion, bloating, gas, and belching. People at higher risk for developing cholecytitis include women, older adults, obese people, and people of Scandinavian, Native American and Hispanic descent. All right. We've been going for a little over 20 minutes now, so this would be the perfect place for you to take a break. All right. Welcome back. If you did leave, we're going to now switch gears or just talk about pancreatitis. Pancreatitis is the inflammation of the pancreas. It's caused by obstructing gallstones, alcohol abuse, or other diseases. Signs and symptoms include severe pain in the upper left and right quadrants, often radiating to the back. The patient may report that the pain is worse after eating. Other signs and symptoms include nausea, vomiting, abdominal distension, and tenderness. Unfortunately, this process could lead to sepsis or hemorrhage, so you need to look for other symptoms. That may include a fever and possible tachycardia, which will clue you in that there is an active bleed. We're now going to talk about the dreaded appendicitis. Appendicitis is the inflammation or infection in the appendix. It can cause tissue to die, causing an abscess, peritonitis, or shock. Pain is initially more generalized and dull, as well as being diffused and may center in the umbilical area. Pain later localizes to the right lower quadrant. Now, signs and symptoms of appendicitis include nausea and vomiting, anorexia, fever, chills, and rebound tenderness. This is a result of the peritoneal irritation. If you suspect your patient is suffering from appendicitis, assess by pressing down gently and firmly on the abdomen. Patient will feel pain when the pressure is released. Now we're going to talk about gastrointestinal hemorrhage. If the hemorrhaging is acute, the condition could be more severe, as opposed to when the hemorrhage is chronic, it may be less severe, but regardless, all complaints should be considered serious. Now, this hemorrhaging can occur in the upper or lower gastrointestinal tract. Bleeding in the upper gastrointestinal tract occurs from the esophagus to the upper small intestine. Hemaemesis is frequently seen in patients with upper gastrointestinal bleeding. Lower gastrointestinal bleeding occurs between the upper part of the small intestine and the anus, often manifest as melanoma or dark tarry stools. I'm telling you, there are more tongue twisters with this lecture than anything else. For a prime example, the next emergency we're going to deal with is esophagitis. This occurs when the lining of the esophagus becomes inflamed by infection or acids from the stomach. You may have heard of this as GERD, which is gastroesophageal reflux disease. So GERD is a condition in which the sphincter between the esophagus and the stomach opens, allowing the stomach acid to move up into the esophagus. This is also referred to as acid reflux disease. You probably have heard the many, many commercials regarding acid reflux therapies and so forth. Now this acid reflux disease can cause a burning sensation within the chest, otherwise known as heartburn. Patients may report difficulty swallowing, along with obvious heartburn, nausea, vomiting, and sores in the mouth. Now there's another condition that affects the esophagus and this is known as esophageal varices. This condition occurs when the amount of pressure within the blood vessels surrounding the esophagus increases. The blood flow is blocked in the portal vessels and vessels dilate causing the capillary network of the esophagus to begin leaking. If pressure continues to build, the vessel walls may fail causing massive upper gastrointestinal bleeding and hematemesis. Initially, the patient shows signs of liver disease, which includes fatigue, weight loss, jaundice, anorexia, edemia in the abdomen, abdominal pain, nausea, and vomiting. Gradual disease process can take years before the patient feels discomfort. Rupture of varices is far more sudden. The patient will experience a sudden onset of discomfort in the throat. They will have severe difficulty swallowing possibly vomiting of bright red blood, hypotension, and signs of shock. You can see how this minor thing could become a major emergency. We're gonna now talk about a condition known as the Mallory-Weiss syndrome. The Mallory-Weiss syndrome happens when the junction between the esophagus and stomach tears, causing severe bleeding and possibly death. Now there are some primary risk factors, alcoholism and eating disorders. This syndrome is prevalent in older adults and older children. Vomiting is the principal symptom. In extreme cases, patients may experience signs and symptoms of shock, upper abdomen pain, hematemesis, and melanoma. We're now going to be moving on to gastroenteritis. Gastroenteritis is an infection combined with diarrhea, nausea, and vomiting. It is caused by either bacterial or viral organisms. It usually enters the body through contaminated food or water. It can also be caused by non-infectious conditions such as adverse medication reactions, toxin exposures, and chemotherapy. Now diarrhea is the principal symptom in both types. Other signs and symptoms include large dumping type diarrhea or frequent small liquid stools, diarrhea containing blood or pus, abdominal cramping, nausea, vomiting, fever, and anorexia okay I promise we're almost done with the causes of acute abdomen we're now going to discuss two last conditions the first one being diverticulitis and hemorrhoids now diverticulitis was first recognized around the 1900s when we started to eat more processed foods the consistency of stools became more solid requiring more intestinal contractions increasing pressure in the colon Bulges in the colonic walls resulted from increased intestinal contractions. Fecal matter is then caught in the bulges and bacteria gathered there, causing inflammation and infection. The main symptom was abdominal pain on the left lower abdomen, but other signs include fever, malaise, body aches, chills, nausea, and last, vomiting. All right. We're gonna move on to the last condition, and that is hemorrhoids. Hemorrhoids are created by swelling and inflammation of blood vessels surrounding the rectum. They may result from conditions that increase pressure on the rectum or irritation of the rectum. Increased pressure may be caused by pregnancy, straining at stool, and chronic constipation. Diarrhea can also cause irritation. During defecation, there may be bright red blood but there will be minimal bleeding and it will be easy to control. Patients may also experience itching and a small mass on the rectum. Okay, we're all done with that stuff now. Let's talk a little bit about the urinary system. Cystitis is a bladder inflammation and is very common in women. It's otherwise known as a UTI, urinary tract infection, which is caused by bacteria. Patients will usually have lower quadrant abdominal pain and may report an urgency and frequency to urinate. This can become a serious problem if the infection spreads to the urethra and eventually the kidneys. Speaking of the kidneys, let's talk about them. Now, Kidneys play a major role in maintaining homeostasis. They eliminate waste from the blood. When the kidneys fail, uremia results. Basically this means the waste product, urea, remains in the blood that could be a very bad thing. Now kidney stones can grow over time and cause blockage. Kidney stones are crystallized chemicals in the urine and blockage can lead to swelling. Pain is caused by the stone moving within the urethra. Now a stone may pass on its own or might be surgically removed. Let's talk a little bit about kidney failure as there are two types. There's acute kidney failure and then chronic kidney failure. Let's first talk about acute. Now obviously this would be the sudden decrease in function. This occurs from a hemorrhage, dehydration, trauma, shock, sepsis, heart failure, medications, drug abuse, or kidney stones. It's reversible with prompt diagnosis and treatment. Now on the flip side of that coin, chronic kidney failure, this is irreversible and basically This condition develops over months and years. It is usually caused by diabetes and hypertension, and what happens is the kidney tissue shrinks and functions diminish. Eventually, the patient will need dialysis or a transplant to remove waste from the bloodstream. Symptoms include an altered level of consciousness, seizure, coma, lethargy, nausea, headaches, cramps, and in the extremities and face. So you can see how chronic kidney failure is much worse than acute kidney failure. The female reproductive organs are in the abdomen, obviously. Gynecological problems are a common cause of acute abdominal pain. The lower quadrant pain may relate to the ovaries, fallopian tubes, or uterus. You'll learn more about this on your gynecological emergency lecture. From here, we're going to now talk about the other organs in the abdominal cavity. Now, the aorta lies immediately behind the peritoneum. Weak areas can result in abdominal aortic aneurysm, otherwise known as a AAA. A AAA is very difficult to detect. Use extreme caution when trying to assess or detect a AAA. Development of an aneurysm is slow. If the aneurysm tears or ruptures, massive hemorrhaging may occur. The pain, if you remember earlier in our lecture, is described as a tearing. Handle the patient gently during assessment and transport. It sounds like a really bad thing and I will tell you from my own experiences as an EMT and paramedic, it is. I've actually seen patients die from a dissecting aortic aneurysm. All right. Don't forget when you're conducting your assessments that pneumonia can cause alias which will cause abdominal pain. We're also going to talk a little bit about hernias now as hernias can cause that abdominal pain for us. Now, a hernia is a protrusion of an organ or tissue through a hole or opening in the body cavity where it does not belong. Hernias can occur as a result of the following. A congenital defect such as around the umbilicus a surgical wound that has failed to heal properly, or a natural weakness in the area such as in the groin. Now hernias may not always produce a noticeable mass or lump. Reducible hernias pose little risk and can be pushed back into the body cavity. Incarcerated hernias cannot be pushed back in and are commonly compressed by surrounding body tissue. Strangulation of an incarcerated hernia is a serious medical emergency. Blood supply is compromised by the compressing surrounding tissue. Signs and symptoms of a serious hernia include a formerly reducible mass that is no longer reducible, pain at the hernia site, tenderness when the hernia is palpated, red or blue skin discoloration over the hernia. So that is it for the pathophysiology portion of this lecture. We're now going to talk about patient assessment. Our first category is scene size-up. Obviously, ensure your scene is safety. Follow standard precautions with a minimum of gloves and eye protection. Consider donning a gown and covering your shoes with disposable protective covers, but obviously you're gonna refer to your ambulance company or your local protocols. Now, determine the number of patients. Consider the need for additional or specialized medical resources and request them early. Try to determine the mechanism or nature of illness. Now, acute abdomen can be the result of violence such as blunt or penetrating trauma. Always be vigilant. If your patient's abdominal pain is trauma related, you need to go back and listen to your trauma lecture, which specifically talks about abdominal and genital injuries as they relate to trauma. Now, in moving forward on your patient assessment, if you have a pale or sweaty patient, who reports tearing pain, you should suspect a AAA. Additionally, if you have any type of gastrointestinal bleeding, you might smell a very characteristic odor, which will tell you that you have that bleeding. Okay, let's now talk about the primary assessment. Remember, the first priority is to identify and treat life-threatening conditions. Assess the patient's level of consciousness and ABCs. Rapidly observe the patient and the environment. The patient will often have knees drawn up to ease the pain of acute abdomen. Consider necessary treatment and transport options. Form a general impression. Ask the patient about their chief complaint. If the chief complaint indicates a life threatening problem, assess and treat it immediately. Now regards to airway and breathing, abdominal pain may cause shallow inadequate respirations. As far as circulation, Ask the patient about blood and vomit or black tarry stools. The pulse rate, quality, and skin condition may indicate shock. Check the patient's pulse in both arms. A difference in pulse strength may indicate an aortic dissection. Shock may be caused by hypovolemia or by the result of a severe infection. If shock is present, intervention should include high flow oxygen, placing the patient supine, and keeping the patient warm. By now, you should be making your transport decision. The patient should be considered immediate transport if they are pale, cool, diaphoretic, tachycardic, are showing signs of hypotension, and have a altered level of consciousness. Ensure that the patient's ride is gentle, smooth, and steady. That is it with primary assessment. Now we're going to talk a little bit about history taking. Now, obviously, you should be using sample, and since the patient is exhibiting pain, the best mnemonic to use is OPQRST. Now, for abdominal pain, O, onset, when did it begin? What were you doing? For P, provocation and palliation, what makes it better or worse? Movement, position. Q, quality, describe the sensation in your abdomen. R. Region. Radiation. Point to its location. Does it radiate or move? S. Severity. How bad is the pain on the scale from 1 to 10? T. Time. Do you have pain all the time? Is it intermittent? Has it changed? Now, if your patient is a female, we have some specific questions to ask them. The first question is, where are you in your menstrual cycle? Is your period late? Do you have bleeding from the vagina that is not menstrual bleeding? If you are menstruating, is your flow normal? Have you had this pain before? If so, when did it happen and what was it like? Is it possible you are pregnant? And are you using birth control? While some of these questions may appear to be of a private nature, it is very important that the EMT be sensitive and ask these questions in a confidential manner. Now, I do wanna go back to utilizing sample. In your sample history, you wanna ask the patient if they have any nausea and vomiting, if there's any change in their bowel habits and urination, any type of recent weight loss, excessive belching or flatuation, talk about the pain or ask about the pain, any concurrent chest pain, and any other associated signs and symptoms. Okay, moving on to the secondary assessment. Positioning of the patient may give clues to the nature of illness. A patient with appendicitis may draw up the right knee. A patient with pancreatitis may lie curled up on one side. Now, when you conduct your physical examination, the normal abdomen is soft and not tender to the touch. Pain and tenderness are the most common symptoms of an acute abdomen. Localized pain may give clues to the problem organ. Muscles of the abdomen wall may become rigid involuntarily. This board-like muscle spasm is called guarding. Now, the following steps will help you in your abdomen assessment. Explain any procedures to the patient. Place the patient in a supine position with legs drawn up and flexed at the knees. Expose and visually assess the abdomen. Ask the patient where the pain is most intense. Palpate the abdomen very gently. Gently palpate all four regions of the abdomen to determine softness or guarding. Note whether the pain is localized or widespread. Look for patient response after palpating. Determine whether the patient exhibits rebound tenderness. And last, determine whether the patient can relax the abdominal wall on command. Guarding and rigidity may be present. As we move into the vital signs portion of this, remember, a high respiratory rate with a normal pulse rate and blood pressure may indicate improper ventilations. A high respiratory rate and pulse rate, which signs of shock may indicate septic or hypovolemic shock. If a patient has a dialysis shunt in his or her arm, avoid taking a blood pressure in the same arm as the shunt to avoid damaging it. All right, we've been going now for a little over 20 minutes, so this would be the perfect time for our last break. We're now going to be talking about the reassessment. Because it is often difficult to determine the cause of abdominal pain, frequent assessment is important. Has the patient's level of consciousness changed? Has the patient become more anxious? Have the skin signs begun to change? Has the pain gotten better or worse? Has bleeding increased or decreased? Is the current treatment improving the patient's condition? Has an already identified problem gotten better or worse? What is the nature of any newly identified problems? Assess interventions, including treatment for shock and provide emotional support. Transport the patient in the most comfortable position. Most patients will want to be supine with their knees drawn up. If the patient wants to lie on his or her side, try to accommodate that position. And as always, consider ALS. Well, that is it for reassessment. We're now gonna talk about Emergency medical care for this type of emergency. Although you cannot treat the causes of acute abdomen, you can take steps to provide comfort and lessen the effects of shock. Treat the patient for shock even when obvious signs of shock are not apparent. Position patients who are vomiting to maintain a patent airway. Contain the vomitus to prevent spread of infections. Use a biohazard bag. Wear gloves eye protection, a gown, and a mask. When the patient has been released to hospital staff, clean the ambulance and equipment. Wash your hands even though you were wearing gloves. Don't forget, when you are transporting your patient and they're complaining of nausea, provide them a little bit of oxygen. This may assist them with that nausea. All right, we're now gonna actually end this lecture talking about dialysis emergencies as it's part of the lecture series. In patients with end-stage renal disease or chronic renal failure, dialysis is the only definitive treatment. Dialysis filters the blood by cleansing out the toxin and returns the clean blood back to the body. Dialysis eliminates waste, normalizes blood chemistry, and reduces excess fluid. If a patient misses a dialysis treatment Weakness and pulmonary edemia can be the first in a series of conditions that become progressively more serious. Some ambulance providers actually transport patients to and from their dialysis centers. A dialysis machine functions much like normal kidneys do. Patients undergoing long-term hemodialysis have a shunt that connects a vein and an artery. This allows blood flow from the body to the dialysis machine. Peritoneal dialysis allows large amounts of dialysis fluid to be infused into and back out of the abdomen cavity. Fluid stays in the cavity for one to two hours and carries a high risk of peritonitis. Adverse effects of dialysis include hypotension, muscle cramps, nausea and vomiting, hemorrhage from the access site, and last, infection at the access site. If your call involves a patient on dialysis, start with the ABCs, provide high flow oxygen if indicated, manage any bleeding from the access site, position the patient sitting up in case of pulmonary edemia or supine if the patient is in shock and transport promptly. Some dialysis patients also have urinary catheters. Unfortunately, catheters can often be a site of infection. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we made it through another lecture. This will do it for your gastrointestinal and urological emergency lecture. Remember you can listen to these podcasts ad free by subscribing and becoming a member either through this podcast or by joining our Patreon channel. Membership grants exclusive learning content such as members, exclusive podcasts, quizzes, tests, and study guides. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at the EMT Tutor. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for listening and happy EMT.